One Church podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. And for more information, please visit us on the web at onechurch.net. All right, hey, if you have your Bible, grab it. Turn to Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3. And uh, we're going to read a couple of verses there as we're continuing our series uh, that we're calling Milk and Honey. And um, we're basing that series off of the verse in Exodus chapter 3, verse 17, God's word to Israel when he says this, I'm going to uh, bring you out of uh, the, the land of Egypt. I'm going to bring you up out of the oppression of Egypt and I'm going to bring you into a land flowing with milk and honey. And, and that really is a picture of what God does for us in salvation. That God brings us out of oppression. He brings us out of bondage. He brings us out of fear. He, but he doesn't just bring us out. He brings us into a new thing. Amen? He, he doesn't just bring us out of bondage. He brings us into what the Scripture says, milk and honey, which is really a picture of blessing. God doesn't want to just bring us out of bondage. He wants to bring us into blessing. And so we have been talking about what does it mean to live in the blessing of God? What does it mean to live a blessed life in enjoying the goodness of God? And I started a couple of Sundays ago. I shared with you about the God who blesses. And we looked at the fact that really the first experience of mankind is that God blessed man and that God's purpose is to bless all of the world. Why? Because God is a blesser. God blesses not because we are so good, but because he is so good. It's his nature. It's just what he does. It, it just Blessing just flows out of him because he is so good. He can't help but bless people. That's the desire of his heart is to bless us. So we talked about the God who blesses. Then last week we talked about uh, an atmosphere of honor. And I told you that an atmosphere of honor attracts the blessing of God. And, and we, we saw a story that Jesus was in his hometown and although Jesus could heal, amen, Jesus was able to heal, but the Bible says that he could do no mighty works in his hometown because there was no honor. In other words, where there is no honor, there is no blessing. And, and I believe this, that if we can understand what restrains God, we will understand what restrains us. Or, or if we understand what releases God, we understand what releases the blessing of God into our lives, and that is an atmosphere of honor. We talked about honoring up, honoring down, honoring all around, honoring people, creating an atmosphere of honor in our lives. And today I want to continue in this series, and I want to share with you another, I believe, very important principle Last week we talked about the principle of honor, and today I want to talk to you about the principle of first. The principle of first. And I want to read this passage of Scripture out of Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9. Do you have it in your Bible? It says this, Proverbs 3, verse 9 and 10, it says, Honor the Lord 
Honor the Lord. How do you honor the Lord? Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase, so that your barns will be filled with plenty and so that your vats will overflow with new wine. Now, I know not many of us have barns today uh, here in Winter Park or in Orlando or in Baldwin Park or College Park, but it really is a figurative picture of what God wants to do in our lives, that God wants the blessing to come on us so that our barns will be filled with plenty and so that our vats will overflow with new wine. How many of you want that on your life? God's blessing on our lives. How do we get it? He says, honor the Lord. And then he introduces a specific way that we honor the Lord, and and, and that is with our wealth. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your increase. And uh, today I want to talk to you about the principle of first. And, And this is the principle of first, that when you honor God with the first, the rest will be blessed. And we're going to talk specifically about honoring God with our money. And I know all of you woke up this morning and said, I really hope that he talks about money this morning. I'm just really hoping he's going to talk about that. Uh, probably none of you did. Uh, and perhaps some of you are like, oh boy, here we go, talking about money. Let me just say this. Pastors don't normally like to talk about money. Churches don't normally like to talk about money, but it's in the Bible, okay? And so uh, I know that for some of us, when we talk about money, money is sometimes a, you know, it's a, a kind of a dirty word. Everybody pretends like they don't care about it, but everybody spends most of their time during the week pursuing it, right? And uh, sometimes when it's in, in the church, money is a, shall we say, it's a trigger word, right? And uh, for, for many good reasons. Uh, the reality is that the issue of, of money has been uh, greatly abused in many instances in the church. Is that true? It has been abused in the church. Now, let me say this. The church doesn't have the corner on the market of abusing the issue of money, but it is happening, has happened in the church. I mean, you don't have to look very far to find examples of abuse around the issues of money. I'll never forget one time I turned on the TV and was scrolling through the channels, and I came to the Christian television station And I saw this guy on the Christian television station. He was raising money, and he said, 7 o'clock is the double blessing hour. He said, if you give at 7 o'clock, there's going to be a double blessing that's going to come back to you. All you have to do is call this number. And so I picked up the phone, and I called the number, and I said, I'm I'm calling for the double blessing. Is that offer still available? And, um, you know, was this pre-recorded, and is it still uh, available? And I said, now, 7 o'clock, is that East Coast time or West Coast time? And uh, to which they replied, sir, we're going to transfer you to the prayer line, okay? And um, I've seen other things. I had a friend of mine who um, went to a church one time, and it was a big church, lots of people in the church, and somebody came up uh, during the service and said to the pastor, uh, or said to the church, I believe God has told me that we are to buy the pastor a Porsche, to which the pastor replied, I bear witness to that word, right? And uh, so they passed the offering uh, through the church. They received an offering And they only raised half the amount to buy a Porsche, which actually is pretty amazing. But 
the pastor came up and said, y'all, God did not tell you to buy me half a Porsche. He said to buy me a Porsche, pass the buckets again. How many of you know that's not called receiving an offering, that's called a robbery? That is a robbery, right? I heard, I had a, another friend that told me about a, a church that they were receiving an offering and they wheeled out an ATM, okay? They wheeled out an ATM. Now, let me just put you at ease as we talk about the issue of money. We are not going to be buying any Porsches. There is no 7 o'clock or 11 o'clock double blessing hour. We don't have any ATMs. We're not going to have any gimmicks or tricks. All we're going to do is look at the Word of God. In fact, the reason that we've, we've received the offering already, and I would just say this, uh, if you don't feel compelled to give in your heart, you should not give. You should not give, ultimately, because God is not wanting something from you. God is wanting to give to you. We don't want something from you. We want something for you. Nevertheless, you can't help but read, the, or when you read the Scripture, you can't help but recognize the fact that money matters to God. Money matters to God. In fact, Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21. He says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You see, the issue of money to Jesus is not about your money. It's about your heart. And Jesus is not after our money, he's after our heart, but there is a direct connection between your heart and your money. And notice that he does not say where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. He says where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. In other words, the, the initiative comes through our money that affects our heart and so if we want God to have more of our heart, Jesus says this, the way that we do that is through surrendering our money more to him. If you don't believe me, that, or you don't believe Jesus in that principle of where your treasure is, there will your heart be also, just invest in something, invest in a little bit of stocks. Invest in something, you can invest in a company that you have not cared anything about in the past, but once you invest some money in that company, it's amazing how your heart will be drawn to that company. Suddenly, you'll want to start checking the, the status of that company, how that company is doing. You will have a profound interest in that company. Why? Because you have put your money there, and where your money is, there your heart will be also. And so as we talk about money today, I want you to understand that the issue is not about our money the issue is about our hearts. God is not wanting just to receive money. He doesn't have some, you know, bankruptcy issue in heaven. He's after our hearts. He's about setting us free from the issue or from the constraints of money. And so I want to give you a little bit of a biblical uh, perspective on the issue of money, and then we're going to talk about uh, the, the principle of first, and in particular, the practice of tithing, Okay. And so I want to look at the Scripture, and I've shared with you this before, that Genesis records the creation story in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. The Bible says this, that when God made the world, the Bible doesn't start with sin. The Bible starts with when God made the world, He made it good, right? Have you ever read Genesis 1 and 2? 
It, it is awesome. God makes the world and he makes it good. He fills it with good things and then he puts mankind in the middle of the world and he blesses him. The picture is that God is this gracious, generous, kind, hospitable host that has opened up the good things that he has and has welcomed mankind into it. Not only that, but he blesses him and he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. In other words, God wanted to fill the earth with good things and with blessing. The Bible doesn't start with sin, it starts with blessing. It starts with the goodness of God. Now, that being said, you don't have to read very far before you find that that story takes a turn for the worse, right? The Bible says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, it's the story of what we call the fall, which is basically when mankind turns against God, tries to vote God off the island, wants the blessings without the blesser, wants the gifts without the giver. The Bible records this in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. It says, when the woman saw, sip of tea, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable, listen to this, to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Now, that passage or that verse contains a, a very short phrase, but a very important phrase when it says she took of the food, she took of the fruit and she ate. You see, up until this point, God had put man in the earth. He had blessed him. He had filled the world with good things. He had given everything he had to man. And man's posture was that he was simply a receiver of the goodness of God. But the temptation that came to Eve ultimately and mankind, to Adam and Eve, was that God could not really be trusted to give us good things. That we really couldn't trust God, that he didn't really have our best interest in mind. And so rather than simply being a receiver, the Bible says she took the posture of mankind changed from the posture of a receiver to a posture of a taker. And the reality is that that began really two views that you can live your life out of today. Two views that you can live your life out of today. And we'll go to the next screen because it's the views of lack or abundance. The views of lack or or the view of abundance. Now, the view of abundance is the view that God is good. It's the view that God cares about my needs, that God wants to provide for me, that God is giving me energy and creativity and, and opportunity even for work, and that my work is not just providing for my needs, but I'm actually partnering with God to be a conduit of blessing into the world. That's the perspective of abundance. But conversely, the perspective of lack doesn't say God is good. It says God is distant. And, and I'm not really sure that God can be trusted. I'm not really sure that God 
will provide for what I need, and so I've got to look out for myself because nobody else is going to meet my needs. It views the world and the resources of the world not as abundant because of the blessing and the goodness of God, but the resources of the world as scarce. And so I've got to climb over everyone that I can to get all I can and can all I get, and then I sit on the can, right? I can't afford to be generous. I can't afford to give to anybody else. Why? Because I'm not really sure that God can be trusted. I'm not really sure that God is good. Now, let me say this. Most of us would never verbalize this, but many of us live out of this view. Why are we anxious? Why are we worried and stressed? Why does work become such a difficult challenge and a a sore spot in our lives? Because oftentimes we live not out of a view of abundance, but a view of lack. A view of lack. That's what Jesus was talking about when he said, don't worry about what you'll eat. Don't worry about what you'll drink. Don't worry about what you'll wear. Everybody is looking after all of those things. But here's what I want you to do. Don't worry, but seek first the kingdom of God. Live out of this place of abundance. Get into that world that Jesus called the kingdom of God, where God is in control, where his abundance is available to every single person through faith. And so many of us are torn between these two views, the view of lack or the view of abundance. And I find it interesting that, and let me just say this before we move on, I want you to understand that that is not about what you have It's actually about your heart. You can have a lot of possessions and still view the world through lack. Conversely, you can have very little and live with a view of abundance. That's why the Apostle Paul said, I've learned the secret of contentment. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, he says. So it's not about what we have. It is about our heart. It's about our heart, but I find it interesting that the first words of Jesus' opening sermon as he begins his ministry is this, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. What is the gospel to the poor? It is that you don't have to live your life in lack. It is that God did not just come, that Jesus did not just die to forgive your sins. He died to break the curse of poverty over your life. He died to break the power of lack over your life. He died to bring you out of lack. Again, not just in what you have, but in your heart. He died to bring you out of lack and to bring you into abundance. He died to bring you out of slavery and into sonship. He died to bring you out of bondage to fear and to bring you into the blessing of abundance. The the way that we view our money is directly tied to the way we view the gospel. 
That's why the Apostle Paul, when he encourages the church in Corinth on generosity, he does not say, come on, guys, you've got some extra, cough it up. Here's what he says. You know, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. He goes on to say this in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8, and God is able to make all grace. Notice that grace is connected to finances. He's able to make all grace abound toward you, always having, or that you always having all sufficiency and all good things may have, what does it say? Have an abundance for every good work. He's saying you have recognized the gospel in your life, and the result when you recognize the gospel in your life is that it changes the way you view money, that you're no longer living in lack, but now you've been brought into abundance. Again, not because of what you have, but a heart of abundance. You see, God is not after giving you more money. He's after giving you more freedom. He's actually after bringing freedom into your heart to break off the chains of selfishness, to break off the chains of fear, to break off the chains of worry and anxiety in your life. And so when we recognize the goodness of God, it it brings us out of lack and into abundance. We recognize that God has called us to partner with him to bring blessing into the world. How does that happen? Well, it happens, I believe, one of the ways it happens is through the principle of first, that God wants to release blessing into our lives. Again, not just what we have, but in our hearts, he wants to give us joy that money can't buy. He wants to give us peace that money can't buy. He wants to give us freedom that money can't buy. Some of us say money gives us freedom. No, Jesus gives us freedom. Money, you can, be, you can have lots of money and still be a slave. It's not money that gives us freedom. Jesus gives us freedom. But how does he do that? How do we reorient the interior posture of our heart into this place of abundance. And it's through the principle of first and what I would call the practice of tithing. The practice of tithing. You see, the principle of first is this. When I put God first, the rest will be blessed. When I honor God, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of your increase. When I put God first, I am trusting that his blessing is going to provide for everything I need. Why? Because God is a good father. He provides everything I need. I don't have to live like a, like a squirrel that hides things away because I always have a good father that I can trust. And so how do we practice this principle of first? I want to give you three points that I believe are biblical, a biblical understanding that we all need to have around the principle of first. The first thing that I want you to see is this. If you're taking notes, number one is this, that God must be first. God must be. Notice the language. Notice I didn't say he should be 
or he ought to be. God must be first. You see, there's some things that God cannot do. God cannot lie. Why? Because God is truth. God cannot sin. Why? Because God is holy. And and, and another thing that God cannot be or God cannot do is God cannot be second. Why? Because God is first. It's what theologians call the doctrine of preeminence. It's that God is above all, over all, supreme and controlling all. He is first. And that's not just a truth that we ascribe to intellectually. It's a truth like gravity that we reorient our whole lives around its reality. That God is first. Now let me look at a story with you that you may be familiar with just to show you what I'm talking about. In Genesis chapter 4, Verse 3, it's the story of Adam and Eve's sons, Cain and Abel. And maybe you're familiar with this story. The Bible says this in verse 3. It says, in the process of time, notice that language, in the process of time, or in other words, over time, after some time had passed, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord And Abel also brought, listen to this, the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect, or in other words, he did not receive Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that, my heart kind of goes out to Cain. Anybody else, you're like, come on, God, what about Cain? What's wrong with Cain? Poor Cain. He brought an offering. What's, show some love. Come on. And honestly, growing up, I never understood that. I thought, okay, it, Cain brought the offering of the fruit, and Abel brought the, fir- brought the firstborn of his flock. Is, it, is God, he's a meat eater? He doesn't like vegetables? Is that what it was? He just, it's like, get, that, get those veggies out of here. I want meat. No, that's not what it is. Here's here's what I want you to understand. It's not about the offering. It's about the order. It's not about the offering. It's not about what was brought. It's about when it was brought. The order in which it was brought. Cain brought an offering after some time. In other words, he saw what his harvest would be, and after a little while, he said, okay, I'm going to bring an offering to God. But that's not what Abel did. Abel said, I'm going to bring the firstborn. I'm going to bring the very first one, and I'm going to bring it to God. You see, it doesn't just matter. Obedience is not just whenever we want to do it. I remind my boys that obedience is immediate. It's not obedience if I tell you now and you do it 30 minutes later. Obedience has an order to it. And it's true when it comes to our offering to God that God must be first. Why is that? It's ultimately because it's a matter of trust. When you give God the first, you're saying, God, I am trusting you are my source. I'm not going to wait until I get 10 sheep. I'm going to give you the very first. I'm not going to wait until I have 10 and then I'm going to bring you the the runt of the litter. 
God, I'm going to bring you the very first. I'm going to bring you the best. Why? Because I'm trusting you that you're going to provide more in my life. Why? Because, God, you're my source. You're a good God. I'm trusting you. When we trust God or when we give God our first, we are demonstrating that we trust him. See, every dollar that we have says these words, in God we trust on it. The question is, is that true? Do we trust God? The way that we demonstrate that is through putting God first in our life and particularly in our finances. And what does that look like? Practically speaking, here's what it means. If we want God's blessing in our finances, how many of you want God's blessing in your finances? doesn't mean that everything is going to go well. It doesn't mean that you're going to have, um, you know, everything you've ever wished for. It doesn't mean that life will always be easy, but it's better to go through the hardships of life with the blessing of God than without the blessing of God. And so, when we, if we want the blessing of God, here's what the Bible says, that giving to the Lord needs to be, be the very first thing that we do. Practically speaking, that means if you write checks, it's the first check that goes out every week or every month, whenever you're paid, whenever you receive an increase, that you give to God first. Now, I don't think God's a legalist, and if you get a direct deposit into your account and, you know, you go shopping at Publix before you've paid, before you've given tithes, I don't think God is going, you're cursed, okay? That's not God's not a legalist, but it's a principle of your heart that manifests in your finances, that you put God first. For Jen and I, practically, that means we, we've just set up direct, uh, well, we have direct deposit, but then we also give automatically. And I have a little reminder that comes up on my phone uh, every time I get paid that just says, on the payday, it says, honor the Lord with your wealth with the first fruits of all your increase. I just stop and I say, God, thank you that you've provided for my needs. And, you know, I'm not bringing it physically. Uh, I've just set it up so that it happens automatically. Uh, but it's first in my heart. Why? Because God is first. Number one, God is first. The second point I want you to see, if you want to practice the, the principle of first, the second thing I want you to see is that first fruits must be offered. Not only must God be first, but first fruits must be offered. Now, I know that language, first fruits, is not, you know, first fruits is not trending on Twitter right now. It may not be something that we're that used to, but I want to look at a passage of Scripture that hopefully will give us a little bit of understanding. Exodus chapter 13. And um, I'm going to move quickly through this, but Exodus chapter 13, verse 1 and 2. This is, Israel has just come out of Egypt. This is before the law has been instituted. But God says to Moses in Exodus 13, verse 1, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, notice that firstborn, the first, whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and of beast, it is mine. It belongs to me. Verse 11, it says this, And it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, that's the promised land, the place flowing with milk and honey, when you experience the blessing of God, as he swore to you and your fathers to give you, that you shall set apart to the Lord 
all that open the womb, that is every firstborn that comes from an animal which you have, the males shall be the Lord's, but every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, and if you, if you will not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. Now, again, I know you woke up this morning going, I hope he talks about lambs and donkeys because that's super relevant to what I'm going through right now. No, it's confusing. This is 4,000 years ago in an agrarian society, but let me help you understand because everything that is in the Old Testament is a picture of a New Testament reality. And here we have this picture of clean animals. The lamb is, is clean and the donkeys are unclean. Again, why did God do that? Not because he doesn't like donkeys. He's giving us a picture of the spiritual reality of humanity, clean and unclean. And he says that Whenever you have a flock that is born, whenever there's lambs that are born, whenever there's donkeys that are born, and you need to, if you want the, the donkeys to be clean, you want the unclean animals to be clean, you need to sacrifice the firstborn of the clean to redeem the unclean. Now, I don't know if that's, if you're picking up on what I'm putting down or what the Bible is putting down, but here we have clean and unclean, and the firstborn of the clean is sacrificed to redeem or to cleanse the unclean. Now, let me ask you a question. Were you born clean or unclean? Was mankind born clean or unclean? If you, if you don't know the answer to that, well, you can serve in little ones next week, and you'll find out the answer to that. Man is born selfish. Man is born sinful. We're born in the image of God. We're eternally valuable, eternally loved, but we are also flawed. You don't have to teach kids how to steal, how to hit, how to bite. They are born ready for the UFC, right? And, and so we're born unclean. Jesus was the firstborn, the Bible says, over all creation, and he was sacrificed, why? To redeem the unclean. The Bible says that he was sacrificed to bring many sons to glory. Aren't you thankful that God has not left you in your sin, but Jesus was sacrificed to redeem you? That word redemption means to add value to your life. And so this is a picture, but it's also a pathway. It's also a pathway to blessing. Let me ask you another question. I already asked you, are you born clean or unclean? Another question I want to ask you, is, is money clean or unclean? Is money clean? You don't have to answer out loud, but is money clean or unclean? It's a, it's a trick question. Here's the answer. It depends who has it. How many of you know money can be used for some bad things? But how many of you know money can be used for some great things? The answer uh, is whether it's clean or unclean, it depends who has it. And so if you have been cleansed, when money comes into your hand, it has the potential to be redeemed. How do you redeem your money? You redeem your money by sacrificing the first that God says, it is mine. You give that to God to redeem the rest. Again, that word redemption is to add value. If you redeem a gift card, you are adding value. You're releasing the value that is in that gift card. And what the Bible is saying here is that when we give God our first, 
When we honor him with the first, we redeem the rest. In other words, the the 90% or the 80% or the 50% or the 10%, whatever it is that God leaves in your hands, will become more valuable than the 100% unredeemed. It's redeemed. It has value. Why? Because it's been brought into the kingdom of God. How many of you know money has a different value depending on what kingdom it's under? And when you bring your finances through honoring God with your wealth, you add value to your money. And so the first fruits must be offered. The last thing I want you to see, number three is this, is not only must God be first and must the first fruits be offered, but the third thing I want you to see is that tithes must be brought Tithes must be brought. Now, you say, do I have to give tithes? We'll talk about that in a little bit. But I believe tithes must be brought. Look at what the Bible says in Exodus 23. It says in verse 19, it says the first of the first fruits. God's almost saying, do you understand what I mean when I say first? The first of the first fruits. The very first of your land you shall bring into the house of the Lord. Notice that language, you shall bring... Malachi uses the same language in Malachi 3, verse 10, when he says, bring all of the tithes into the storehouse. That word tithes literally means 10%. It says, bring 10% into the storehouse that there might be food in my house. It's interesting. It doesn't say give the tithe. It says bring the tithe. Why? Because God has already said that the first belongs to him. Now, the reality is that everything belongs to him. But we are honoring him by bringing the first. It already belongs to him. It already belongs to him. And, and, and so sometimes we think, well, do I have to give? Do I? No, he says, bring the tithes. Let me give you an example. If I loaned you my car, maybe I was going away somewhere, you took me to the airport, you drove my car, I let you borrow it while I was gone, and you came back and you're like, Justin, I'm pretty excited about this. I, I'm I'm feeling super generous today. I, I don't know what it is, but I just want to give you a gift. Justin, I want to give you a car. And you hand me my keys back to me. I'd be like, what are you talking about? Generous? That's not generous. That's already my car, right? I'll punch you in your throat. That's not what I'm, that's not being generous. Why? Because it already belongs to me. That's what God is saying is this already belongs to me. Everything you have comes from me, and so I'm asking you just to bring these tithes, this 10%, notice what it says, into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Now, in the Old Testament, that was the temple or that was the tabernacle. Even before that, there was other places that people tithed. But in the New Testament, the house of God is the church, the local church that God has brought you into he says, bring the tithes so that there may be food. He doesn't mean just good coffee in the lobby. He's talking about spiritual food. The place that God has put you, the table that he has brought you to, where you are receiving spiritual nourishment, bring the tithe into the local church. Now, some of you may hear that and you would say, well, no, Justin, tithing is Old Testament. To which I would say, yes, it is Old Testament, 
But again, everything in the Old Testament is a picture of a New Testament reality, and not only that, but not everything in the Old Testament is Old Covenant. What I mean is not everything in the Old Testament is invalid today. How many of you know, just because the Bible said, thou shalt not commit adultery in the Old Testament, that doesn't mean that it's no longer valid, right? What was uh, even law under the Mosaic law may still be a principle that we practice today. And here's what I want you to see is that tithing existed before the law. Tithing existed before the law. In fact, the Bible says that when God blessed Abraham, the scripture says in Genesis chapter 14, verse, uh, Genesis chapter 14, verse 18, it's the story of God blessing Abraham. And Abraham goes from uh, uh, just he and his wife, a couple of people, they become so blessed that they become an army, a nation with an army. And God gives them a great victory. And the Bible says that after they had won this victory, they took all of the spoils of war. And Abraham was in the wilderness, and he comes across this guy named Melchizedek. Now, we don't know a lot about Melchizedek other than he was, he, he was a king. He was the king of Salem, and he was also a priest. Does that sound familiar to anybody? He was a king, Jesus, and he was a priest, like our high priest, Jesus. And Abraham encounters Melchizedek, and Melchizedek came out with bread and wine. Anybody find any familiarity in that? Bread and wine, right? What is it? It's a picture of the gospel. He comes out, and it says that he was the high priest of the Most High, verse 19, and he blessed him blessed Abraham, Melchizedek blessed Abraham and said, blessed be Abram, the God, uh, uh, Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Listen to this. And he gave him a tithe of all. Abraham encountered Melchizedek, a picture, the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, that he was a type or a foreshadow of Christ, and he brought out bread and wine, a picture of the new covenant. It was a picture of the blessing that's been bestowed on us through Jesus. Abraham received the blessing, and what did he do? He tithed to Melchizedek. Why? Because tithing is a response to the grace of God in our lives. Jacob had the same experience in Genesis chapter 28, verse 14. He has this encounter with God, and he sees heaven open, and he has this dream, and heaven is coming down, and God appears to him and speaks to him the same blessing that had been bestowed on his grandfather, uh, Abraham. It comes to Jacob, and it says this in Genesis 28, verse 14, and in you and in your seed All the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's the same thing that was spoken to Abraham. And the Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians calls that the gospel that was preached to Abraham. And this stone which I have set up as a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. What is that? He received the gospel and he responded in faith and it was demonstrated through giving a tithe. Now, let me say this. This is 600 years before tithing was implemented under the law. Tithing preceded the law. Why? Because tithing is tied to blessing. 
Tithing is a response to the grace of God in the gospel. And so it's demonstrated before the law. And then also Jesus affirms tithing even through his ministry. The Bible tells us in Matthew 23, verse 23, one day there were some Pharisees who showed up. And there was this big, um, big controversy over their, whether they should tithe or how much they should tithe and all of these things. And, and Jesus says to them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe on mint and anise, I suppose the word is, and cumin, and have neglected, listen to this, the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith, those you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Now, we read this and we go, God, Jesus is not really big on tithing or he's not emphasizing tithing. No, he actually says you're tithing, you're super careful to make sure that every little leaf in your garden you are giving 10%. You're, you have this outward obedience, but your heart is far from God. You've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. In other words, it's not tithing that brings the blessing of God. It is faith in Jesus that brings the blessing of God into our lives. But, he says, these you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Could I propose to you that if Jesus was wanting to invalidate the practice of tithing, this would have been a great moment to do it. This would have been the moment that he would have been like, guys, stop tithing and just do these weightier matters of the law. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, these you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament again affirms this reality by saying, and it's speaking about Melchizedek as this picture of Christ in the Old Testament it says this, that here mortal men receive tithes. In other words, how do we give tithes? We bring to the house of God. We donate to through the local church. There's offerings above that, beyond that. But the tithe we bring into the church and it's received by men. It's processed and, and it goes to fund ministry. It goes to fund mission. It goes to fund all of the things through the local church. Here men receive tithes. But there he receives them, of whom it is witness that he lives. What's he saying? This tithing is not just a practical thing. It's a spiritual thing. It's a spiritual thing. When we are giving in faith, we are giving to the Lord. And he says, here men receive tithes, but there he receives them. Jesus receives them, of whom it is written that he lives. Now, let me get practical for a moment. I know oftentimes, for many of us, we read the Bible and we love truth in concept. The challenge is in the application, right? Like, how many of you love the idea of working out? Uh, in our alpha group a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about our favorite uh, exercise, and somebody said, like, I love the idea of tennis. I'm like, yeah, I love the idea of it, too. It's not the idea of it, it's actually doing it that gives me the challenge, right? I love the idea of CrossFit. I just think it's the niftiest idea ever, right? It's not the idea, it's the practice that creates the challenge. And oftentimes when we talk about generosity, 
We love the idea. Yeah, generosity is a good thing. Where we struggle is when it comes into the practice of it. And God gives us, I believe, a, a, a very practical way to put the, the principle of first fruits into practice through tithing. Now, let me say this. For some of us, we should give way beyond 10%. For some of us, that, that's too little. And I believe all of us, as we step into a place of greater and greater generosity, God will lead us into that place where we're able to do even above that. But I believe God gives us that practice just to, to allow us to follow the principle that he's given to us. And, uh, you know, Jen and I, I'll tell you this in my experience, Jen and I have practiced this principle and, and lived as tithers as long as I can remember. I, I remember my grandfather sitting down with me and, and explaining the principle of tithing, not as a legalistic law-giving requirement, but as a life-giving practice that as I tithe, I'm, I, I'm joining with God, I'm partnering with God. And here's what I found as I've gotten older and financial pressure increases on my life, that tithing is pulling back the pressure, pulling back the chains of self-centeredness that can, if I'm not careful, can grow up around my heart, that it is transforming my heart. And so Jen and I have always practiced tithing long before I was a pastor. We practiced tithing because we believe that God wants to bless our lives. We believe that God is our source. We've, we've practiced tithing. I remember a time, you know, we uh, our, the money that we had coming in for several months at a time, uh, it didn't mathematically add up to the obligations that we had. Anybody ever had more month than you have money? And uh, we said, I don't know how we're going to do it. And to be honest, we were tempted to go, man, we could really use this money that we have said we're going to give. But we just said, you know what? No, if we're going if, if to go down, we're going to go down in faith. And I'll tell you this, we didn't go down. God, God miraculously provided for us. I remember our accountant filing our taxes was like, you should not be giving this money. You can't afford to give this money. And I said, no, I can't, I can't afford not to. Why? Because I want God's blessing on my life. And I'm not going to draw back just because times get hard. I'm going to continue to practice the principle of first. Now, I know, and as the worship team comes back up, I know I've been strong on this. I know that I've preached uh, not on my own ideas, hopefully the authority of God's Word, but here's what I want you to understand. We're under grace. We're under grace. This is not a heavy obligation that I want to put upon you. And, and even as you receive this truth, for some of us, uh, there's some complications maybe that make it challenging. Perhaps we have a spouse that would not be in agreement in the same way that we would you have to navigate that. Perhaps, perhaps you've made financial obligations that, you know, practically speaking, would seem to make it impossible for you to tithe. And, and if I could just lovingly challenge that a little bit, if I could just say, uh, out of love, here's the, here's the question, not do I have to tithe? Not do I have to tithe? We, we don't do anything to earn God's blessing and God's favor on our lives. The question is not, do I have to tithe? The question is, do I trust him? 
Do I trust God with my money? Do I trust God with my life? And here's what I would say to you is that if you trust him, then test him. If you trust God, then test him. Here's practically what I want to encourage you to do. If you feel that God is speaking to you and challenging your heart, then just put him, as Malachi says, put God to the test. Test me now in this and see if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing on you. And again, it's not just about finances. It's actually about greater wealth, spiritual wealth in your heart. See if I won't pour out a blessing that you don't have room enough to receive. I want to ask you if you would just to stand to your feet.